politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, neighbors. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles, yet serving through the magic of radio, all of Southern California, and through the mystery of the internet, <laughs> the entire world at kpfk.org. A week ago today, I mentioned that uh, my friend, my colleague, and uh, my mentor, the dean of Los Angeles Talk Radio, Michael Jackson, had just passed away a few days earlier, and that I wanted to do a tribute this week to Michael. And so we're going to do that beginning in just a few minutes. I will be replaying a segment from a two-hour interview that I did with Michael in the KPFK studios about radio, mostly about his career, about him as, uh, again, uh, the talk radio host that many of us in the business have emulated all of our lives and, and admired and stolen most of what we know. I'll speak for myself if nobody else. I'll cop to it. And uh, it's obviously I've edited it down so it'll fit into this hour. But um, it's highlights from a program that we did here 18 years ago. It's hard to believe. It was February of 2004. George Bush had just been reelected, or better said, selected by the Supreme Court. Al Gore won the election. You remember how that worked out. It was like Trump losing to Hillary and winning the election. The problem with this uh, archaic electoral college. And so that's coming up in just a few minutes. I think you'll be amazed at how well the interview holds up and how prescient our discussion of what was happening to talk radio and to radio in general. But I also want to suggest that next week I'm going to do something similar because in the last few days we've lost another truly great, great man. And that's the Zen Buddhist monk and mindfulness master, peace activist, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Thich Nhat Hanh. And he was 95. He had been unable to speak since a stroke in 2014. And he lived for a couple of years in his beloved Plum Village Monastery in southwestern France, moved to Thailand for a few years, and then just in the last couple of years had gone home to Vietnam to uh, the city of Hue in central Vietnam. And the very monastery where he was ordained at the age of 16. Thich Nhat Hanh has written over 100 books in English, more than 130 books altogether, and sold in excess of 5 million copies. He's a remarkable man, not only a teacher of mindfulness 
and Zen meditation, but a peace activist and maybe better known for his activities opposing the Vietnam War in the 1960s and coming to America to explain the suffering of the Vietnamese at the hands of what we knew to be and has since been proven to be an illegal and immoral and unethical war, a war of aggression, of nonsensical slaughter of millions of people, including 55,000 Americans and even greater numbers of permanently injured people, many of whom have passed away since. But what was real significant about Thich Nhat Hanh was his ability to use the practice of mindfulness to bridge social and political activism, anti-war activities, social justice, nonviolent direct action, with the personal benefits of becoming mindfully aware, awake and alert, expanded awareness of self and situation through a meditation practice that then carried over into your daily life and affairs as you open your eyes and move out into the world to become more mindful of the horror of war, of the corruption of social and economic institutions, and the suffering of social injustice in general. Thich Nhat Hanh greatly influenced Dr. King and in many ways carried on the tradition of nonviolence as practiced by Mahatma Gandhi, a very influential man. And I'd just like to do some sort of tribute a week from today to the venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. So uh, make it a point to join us next week. And we'll begin the replay of the Michael Jackson interview in tribute to him in just a few minutes. Stay with us. This is Michael Benner. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. Michael Benner on KPFK. So here we go. We're going to roll back the calendar to February of 2004, almost exactly 18 years ago, when Michael Jackson, the dean of LA Talk Radio, came into our studios and uh, did a two-hour interview about the state of talk radio, what was happening, and uh, to radio in general with the consolidation of ownership. So here we go, edited down from a two-hour show to about 50 minutes or so. Here's the first part. Michael Jackson on KPFK with yours truly. This is Inner Vision, a program heard in various forms and formats Monday through Friday my pleasure to be your host every Friday afternoon and it's I must say really nice to have my voice back I I did this program last week with uh, Jim Ladd and I was looking forward to it and Don Barrett had done this big puff piece on me and uh, laradio.com and I come in sounding like uh, I can barely talk. It well, was, it thank was, God you've got that pretty face. I mean, came, 
perfect for radio, right? <laughs> they say. We're all better looking on radio. We are, aren't we? Well, that voice you heard, I'm sure you recognize Michael Jackson, the uh, talk radio legend. So we're going to do part two of a discussion that we began with Jim last week and talk more today about uh, deregulation. Many of us think excessive and inappropriate deregulation of the broadcasting media and the resultant um, increase of uh, the centralization of ownership. Michael's recently been inducted into America's Radio Hall of Fame. He's been voted the number one radio talk host nationwide. Uh, For some reason, Mike Harrison's Talker magazine put him all the way down at 11 in the greatest talk show hosts of all time. I don't know why he did. did, Is he angry at you or what? I like him. (laughs) It's very difficult to get listed higher than that if you're off the air. I looked for you near the top, that's for sure. He's provocative, controversial, entertaining, and a recipient, a lot of people don't know this, of seven television Emmys, 13 nominations. Michael has received four Golden Mike Awards, a variety of honors, including the most excellent order of the British Empire, presented by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, also the French Legion of Merit, bestowed personally by President Mitterrand, Michael has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and an honorary doctorate of law degree from Western School of Law. And most importantly, he is a gentleman and a really nice guy and the dean of talk radio, if you ask me. And thank you, sir, and welcome to KPFK. Wow. Yeah. There's no living with him. Well, Michael, you know, let's get all the kudos and yeah. the mushy stuff out of the way. When I was in college and I was studying radio, mm-hmm. And thinking, where are you going to go and what are you going to do? I figured, well, I might have to do a few years in Detroit or Chicago, but I'm heading to L.A. That's brave and stupid. You can tell me why later. Okay. New York had the snow and L.A. had a net Funicello and the Beach Boys, so I figured I'd come to L.A. What I really mean by that is if you want to get into radio, don't start in L.A., don't start in New York, start small town. Yeah, I worked my way through college in Lansing. And I did those four years in Detroit. Yeah. And then I came to Los Angeles, and I was here maybe, this is 1975, I was here maybe three weeks, was aware of you even in college. Really? And uh, an LA Times article came out, big spread on Michael Jackson, the talk show host, who'd been at KBC at that time for, uh, what, five or six years. When did you start at KABC? Um, nine. 1965. Oh, my. Well, then you'd been there a full 10 years by that time. Big spread, and I remember my girlfriend. No, no, 65. 65. I came to the country in 59. And I came here in 75, so anyway, you had been there for a while. And I... I'll give you a measurement of the change of this particular market, this yeah. particular city. When I came to California, the population of California is the current population of L.A. County. Oh, my Lord. It's quite amazing. Everything's changed. Which is what, maybe 10 million? What? L.A. County. How big is L.A. County? 14 million. Is it? Is it? Jeez. See, I've lost track. Hey, I want to talk with you. And again, thank you, sir, so much for coming Michael, to KPFK you. today. Nice to have you here. Um, I want to talk, of course, as we did last week with Jim Ladd, about deregulation and about centralization of ownership, about the state of the medium that we know and love. Well, we've got a whole hour. We're going to take some telephone calls. Oh, good. Uh, I, I'd like to begin with, 
how does Michael Jackson, born in South Africa... No, born in London. Born in London. Here, then, then, then you tell me the story, because I know you traveled to South Africa. Yeah, how would you first get interested in radio? Oh, that's easy. As a little boy, a very little boy during the Blitz, I used to fantasize about a place called Hollywood. And um, because it was romantic and it was lovely and the women had longer legs and, you know, I was very young. Um, and I knew that if I was going to go there, I wasn't going to be a film star. There was no television, so I had to be in radio. I have diaries from the age of 11 saying I was going to be in Hollywood in radio. So were you listening to those Edward R. Murrow broadcasts or who was it? that oh, uh... Edward R. Murrow, of course, we heard very little of. As, as children, but I used to listen. At, at the end of the war, my parents had a, had enough of British uh, wartime, so we went out to South Africa, and I used to listen on shortwave radio to American radio stations. I had an old Hallicrafter, and at night I used to tune into Bing Crosby and Orson Welles and Alan Ladd and all kinds of people like and that. And Voice of America. Um, and some of the radio stations would bounce, but it was generally the Voice of, of America and the American Information Information Service, which was extremely good promotion for this country. And I knew I had to come here, and I got into radio when I was 16 in Southern Africa, saying I was 22, and um, I lied. And um, actually, I've only really significantly lied once in my professional career. Really? And it used to really bug some people when I would discuss it with them, ethicists. Um, a, a sign went up asking who wanted to cover Grace Kelly's wedding at the South African Broadcasting Corporation. So I signed up and took the sign down. <laughs> and on the day when it was finished, I handed the sign in. I was the only one who'd applied for the job. Michael, that's not a lie. That's a damn good lie. It's, it's what would they say? A, uh, it's not the whole truth. <laughs> I think that's what the CIA called gray lies. They're not anyway, white lies, they're not black lies. Or that, that helped get me to the BBC in London, which was superb. And I used to. So you went. So you were born in London, went to South Africa as a young man or a boy, and then yeah. moved back to England. To the BBC, where I worked in two languages, English and Afrikaans, until uh, South Africans began to complain that my Afrikaans had a French accent. <laughs> uh, I could read anything in that language, but not always understand it. And apparently I made that very clear. But I always wanted to come to this country. And one rainy, drizzly day in London, uh, I went past a travel agency which said, you could be in the sunshine 10 days from now. And I did the right thing. I went right into that travel agency and booked a voyage on the SS Mars Dam and came to America. And the boat. Yeah, that's the way to do it. You don't come to a new world and a new life overnight by aircraft. You need some time to adjust. Yeah, yeah. Nice leisurely crossing. The first, the entrance into Manhattan, you go past the Statue of Liberty, and wow, and everything seems so quiet. You think they've given it back because you see this massive skyline and you hear nothing. And then our ship diverted starboard, and we ended up berthing at Hoboken, New Jersey, which ain't the place to berth if you want to get a, a great impression of the United States on your first visit. But it's been a wonderful country for me. I, I, um, I got in a train at Grand Central Station. I had bought a ticket to Boston. 
uh, looking for a town which sounded typically American. And when we got to Springfield, Massachusetts, that struck me as the right place. I got off and got a job there. Really? You just stepped off the yeah, train with to, your bag and yeah. said, this sounds like a good place? I must have really looked like, as they say in the classics, a nebbish. I was wearing a bowler hat, you know, a derby, a long overcoat, and carrying my two bags and went to the cab stand. And I said, uh, do you have a radio station in this town? He said, we have seven. I said, do you have a TV station? He said, we have three. So I said, do we have one that's both? So he said, yeah, W-H-Y-N. So he drove me there. Should have been wary, I suppose, because it was locked up and it was a Friday afternoon. And I kept ringing the front doorbell and a little man wearing a yarmulke came to the front door and he said, no. And I said, I've arrived. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, nobody ever came to Springfield, Massachusetts and said, I arrived. But I did. Spent a year and a half as their morning host. Um, and, and got to know a great deal about this country. And the first lesson I learned was a very significant one. I had to become an American. That didn't mean sound like one. And the greatest difficulty for me was leaving Springfield, Mass, because I loved small-town America. Mm -hmm. It wasn't small values. It were good values. So you became a citizen. Oh, gosh, yes. And uh, yet never really worked to... Um lose your charming accent well what would i take on a french one a german one know. if you wake me in the middle of the night it's serbian <laughs> i don't know would i would i sound like you would i be a southerner would i be a new yorker i always knew that as much as i was told initially that my accent was a handicap i knew eventually it would become a um, a trademark oh it is obviously it's, it's a signature of yours and it bugs some british people can i tell you why why please because the Brits love to be able to tell what education you've had, where you came from, what your father earned, and even your religion. My father could tell you which side of the river in Kent a person came from. I have no regional dialect. And it bugs the daylights out of some people. Oh, there's something uh, transcendent about your British accent. Then. It's not the... It, it, I've noticed when I travel there, the farther north you go, the deeper the brogue. I found just the opposite. Really? I'll prove it. Tell me. Well, when a man from Somerset says, oh, when I comes up from Somerset, that's right down south in Britain. And then there's a Cockney man. You know, I mean, God love you. God love you. Life ain't all you want. It's all you got. So stick a geranium in your hat and be happy. And then if you go up north to north country... So you got your geography all screwed up. Down. I see. Um, no, but every... My wife moved here from uh, Newcastle when she was but five years old, and of course... Well, you know the nickname for them? Geordie. Geordies. They're Geordies. Now, you're going to say, Michael, what does that mean? And I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> Neither do they, I guess. I don't know. But being five years old, of course, yeah. she was in a... Uh, under a lot of pressure to change that accent, become Americanized as quickly as oh, possible. Oh, I, I, I have many young friends who, when they go over with their parents to England uh, to produce films or to act in movies, by the time they get back, their kids all sound British for several weeks. Who do you, again, I've already confessed uh, that you are my mentor in so many ways. Honestly. I have copped so many risks from you. 
watched you so carefully before I met you, after I met you, still Thank today, you. Michael. Well, you was, you took over for me when, when I was on a vacation once. Yeah, and that was one of the highlights of my career. I just turned 30 years old, was working across the hall at KLOS, yeah. doing Dodger Post game news on the AM side. And I don't know what possessed them, but one day they said, um, can you You're sit on. in for Michael? I said, can okay. I sit in for Michael? My God. And we had the net at that day. You were on about 150 or 160 stations. 150-something. Yeah, You're right. Yeah. yeah. And it was Which just was, a thrill. It was, they, 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 they blew that network. That, that was a lot of stations in those days. Yeah. By comparison to networking today, that's not very much. Uh, but... We were on 150 stations for a decade, and then they got swollen-headed management, and they said, if you want the Jackson show, you must buy all the other shows, too. Oh. <laughs> it didn't work that well. And but, didn't they pressure you to move to New York because yes. of the time, and you didn't yeah. want to go to New no, York? No, I live here. Yeah. I love here. Everything I've searched for in life. Remember, early on in our conversation, I said I wanted to be here. It's the place where the stone hits the water, in so many ways causing a ripple-out effect. I mean, we give the world a different religion every month. You looked at your watch. We don't have commercials here. You've forgotten. No, but I want. I know I have people. You're <laughs> right. I did look at my watch. <laughs> Michael Benner with Michael Jackson doing color and commentary. Uh, I, I, I I value the hour, and I also want to reintroduce you. If you don't recognize this voice, it's the Michael Jackson, not the other Michael Jackson. This is the Michael Jackson. I'm the darker one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, so who do you... In this business, admire who do you look up to, living or dead? Who who was your hero in broadcasting? Who was or is? Either way, that's a terribly tough question um, because I can respect the ability of people with whom I entirely disagree and for whom I have no respect whatsoever from the standpoint of their ideas. Having said that, uh, Limbaugh is a brilliant success. What do you think he does well? Um, he's glib. Glib. Has a tremendous confidence. But then let's point something out that you and I don't have. I've never had in my entire career more than one person assisting me. And that person usually is the, is, is, is the same guy, Lyle. Wonderful, yeah. who can track anybody down in this world. Imus has a staff of 19. Oh, my Lord. I had no idea. Uh-huh. Ask Bill Handel how many he has. How many does he? I'm not answering that. But somebody should ask. Ask any of these guys, Limbaugh. They come in and they're given material. Now, most of the talk show hosts, and by the way, that's not a knock. If I could have had that assistance, I'd have taken it. But I never knew. I, I never knew how to delegate authority or responsibility. I wanted to be responsible for what I said myself. Um, but Who else? Who do I? So I respect his success. All right. Um in his field, Rick Dees. He sustains, he survives. Um, Ma uh, Mark and Brian, they succeed, they survive. Uh, Casey, now there's an amazing success story. Did he work 20 minutes a week? Yeah. Literally. It's all done for, if you can make it work for yourself, fine. Now, okay, How about well, interviewers, Michael? People, I knew you were going to get that. <laughs> yeah, people, I mean, you have a way uh, of going deep quickly without offending people you know i introduced you by saying in addition to all these accolades he's Thank a you. gentleman 
Uh, and I think that's part of why you were able to get the people you got. I, I think of being in the hallway there as Jackson's guests would come and leave, and I meet, as a result of that, Muhammad Ali. I'm speechless. I meet uh, Lauren Bacall. I meet uh, Sid Caesar. You have um, a memory, don't you? Oh, Michael. I mean, uh, the people you had on that program, you know, presidents and kings and and movie stars and You know authors. the one who intimidated me? And I'll answer your question in a moment, if I may. The one who really intimidated me? The most who? Prince Philip. Really? I'll tell you why. Uh, somebody called the show and said, I hear you're having Prince Philip tomorrow. I said, yes. And they said, how do you feel about it? Nervous? I'm having this British upbringing. You have a, a respect for or an awe of royalty that is disproportionate. And I said that on the air. He apparently was at the Beverly Hills Hotel shaving and listening to me. And the next morning when he came on the show, he almost gave me a lecture. He said, you're trying too hard during the commercial break. He said, I'm just a guy who shaves. Hmm. And apparently he noticed that I was using an entirely different style with him. I was as pompous as hell. And he really put me in my place. So I learned from that. But I learned from an American many, many, many years ago to always be prepared. And I got I to gotta re repeat the story because I've told it once before, but about 20 years ago. Danny Kaye was the first big American star that I ever had the chance of interviewing. I was a 17-year-old radio announcer. I was full of myself. I mean, the program was called Cape to Cairo. It was being heard all the way from the Cape of Good Hope to Cairo. It was a massive show, live. And in those days, when you went on what we called an outside broadcast, you didn't just take a little microphone and a little transmitter. You needed a staff of three or four and heavy equipment. So we go backstage to the Coliseum Theater in Johannesburg. We're live, 8 p.m. Wow, what a break for me. Danny Kay comes off stage for the interview, and I asked him a stupid question. I have no idea what it was, but it was so stupid. He just looked at me. That may work in television. Try it in radio. <laughs> and looked at me. And I've never, ever failed to do my homework since. But little could I have dreamed or known that 35 years later, he'd be one of the best friends I ever had. Now back to your question. Who do I respect and admire when it comes to... Um, the skill of interviewing. Oh, there are so many good ones on television, particularly. On television, I don't see them on radio. Because on radio, I find too many of them trying desperately hard to boost themselves uh, while utilizing either the telephone call or the guest who's with them in the studio. But from Ted Koppel to Peter Jennings to Barbara Walters to Diane Sawyer, there are dozens of them. And if you want to know when they're at their best, it's under pressure. When, when you see, for example, the aircraft crashing into the skyscrapers in New York, they kept their, I was going to say cool, but that's, that's too simple a word. They kept their professionalism, and I have a lot to learn. From so when Dan Rather started crying on David Letterman, that didn't cause him I rushed to... out and voted for Ed Muskie. <laughs> he, he cried too. Yeah. Gephardt cried the other day. I'm glad it's getting easier for men to cry in public, frankly. I see nothing I've never shameful had a difficulty about it. in that. Nor I. Um... But that didn't diminish uh, um, Rather's image in, in, in your eyes. Not at all. And these guys are so... Brokaw is wonderful in person. 
I happen to prefer Jennings on television to Brokaw. That's personal taste. That doesn't mean one is better than the other. But I think we've been blessed, and I think they've got a generation coming up that's got a long way to go to be able to compete with the established people of today. I thought um, Sam Donaldson, I miss him. Cokie Roberts, I miss her. Uh, but there are dozens of good ones. America, Americans are amazing in front of microphones, different and better than any other people in the world. And I'll explain what I mean. When an Englishman speaks, as I said to you before, he's trying to tell you where he came from, who he is, what he knows. When an American speaks, whether he be of higher state or low, well-educated or ill-educated, urban, suburban, rural, you know what I mean, wherever they come from. When an American speaks, you understand what they mean, and they speak without affectation. A quality of candor, Yeah, you think? Yeah. Well, and we're all so used to microphones now. Well, this is a nice segue to, to one of my primary concerns in inviting you here, which Thank is you. the homogenization of, uh, of radio. I sense, personally, a lot of pandering going on. I see people who, like a Brit Hume, I'll name names, mm -hmm. who knew how to be a good journalist, mm -hmm. who now has learned how to be an out-of-balanced Fox guy. Uh, Bill O'Reilly used to be a real journalist. He told the news. Yep. And if he had a commentary, it would be labeled commentary. Or if there was an editorial, it would be labeled. The following is an editorial. We don't see that today. We hear about the the blurring of the line between entertainment and news. I'm more concerned about the blurring of the line between news and commentary and editorial and the pandering that that is happening where some of these guys, I'm afraid, are being less than honest. Well, we, we've crossed all kinds of lines in what you've just said. Uh, the most recent poll I read said that 13% of Americans get their news from Leno and Letterman. Yeah. So that's 13% written off entirely, okay? Uh, if these talk show hosts, who will tell you over and over that the liberals control talk radio, and of course they're obviously correct, liberals being such nice people, we only hire conservatives. <laughs> Think that one through. That isn't as dumb as it sounds. Um, <laughs> They're hiring people who are talk show hosts, some of them exceptionally good, exceptionally glib, I suppose. If you appeal to an audience, you're good at what you do, but it doesn't make you a newsman. Uh, Hannity, a newsman? No. But that's the way it is. They are, they are talk show hosts, they're not journalists. And many of them are honest and, and will tell you that. I think Hannity has said that on many an occasion, too. It so happens. I've heard John Cobalt say that he said, uh, on KFI. He says, hey, uh, if you think this is news, I don't know where you're coming from. We're just... The entertainers. Yeah, we're obviously outrageous. We'll scream and shout and jump up and down. But, Michael, where uh, are I, the Michael Jacksons? <laughs> where are the guys that I don't, don't scream and shout who really... I the, mean, The ones who are not in your face. Who aren't nasty fascists. Oh, come on. They're not nasty fascists. I'll Michael, tell you one thing they don't do. Michael, they, 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 and you can disagree with me, man. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, you know I'll respect you, and, and maybe you'll even change my mind. But I see an absolute burgeoning disregard for the truth, for the whole truth, 
a pandering to the administration, a willingness even to portray people who love their country and are concerned about foreign policy and domestic policy Can I read you as something? not patriotic, by all means. Okay, um, I have a website, too. And I get it off my chest when you said, where are the Michael Jacksons? Well, this Michael Jackson is not going to fall down uh, and he's not going to stay out of radio for much longer. But I wrote this yesterday and, and posted it yesterday afternoon. In fact, um, my webmaster, Kurt Wyman, did that. Do I have a minute? It'll take one minute. Yeah, we'll take a, a break in just a couple of minutes. We go ahead. It reads this way. This morning, I received an email which was apparently sent to many who feel as I do about the war in Iraq. It was passionate in its arguments for our involvement, and it impugned the patriotism of the many who do not believe that the war was the correct foreign policy. The chief Bob hurled our way was that we simply do not support the men and women in uniform. This is my response. Dear CL, I don't know a single solitary soul, Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, who does not support our fellow Americans. It's an interesting twist to ensure support for those who concocted the reason for the current war in Iraq. It's like Vietnam. Now, 30 years later, can you find anyone who believes that it was a worthwhile war with the loss of over 55,000 American lives and a million Vietnamese? We have now lost over 515 American men and women in Iraq. And who knows how many thousands, thousands wounded, their lives irrevocably changed. For what? Now the administration obviously would have a compelling argument against what I say and believe, but they'll have a very difficult time proving that the stated reasons for the war were accurate or honest. It is so political that our dead are brought home at three in the morning, so that no cameras can be there to record the remains being returned to their homeland. Not even their families are permitted at Dover Air Force Base when they arrive. Why? Because it wouldn't look good for the president. If there was to be a war against al-Qaeda, shouldn't it have been against Saudi Arabia? Fifteen of the 18 World Trade Center terrorists came from there. The ties between the royal house of Saud and the Bush family are many. The administration declared the war they wanted because they knew they could. And with the passage of time, this will become more and more a reality. We're rid of Saddam Hussein. Good, good riddance. A bad man. But there are many in this world. A killer, a dictator, and there are others in this world. But he was never a threat to us and Bush and Cheney and Rove and Rice et al. They know it well. There was a time until very recently when we were a nation respected. Now we appear to be a nation feared and despised. The economic policies of this administration are horrendous, and future generations will find this to be true. Last month, there was a net gain of a thousand jobs in this country. In the Clinton eight years, there were a thousand new jobs every three hours. I watched the State of the Union address by Mr. Bush, and it was the opening salvo of the election which just might see a change, against all odds, in the occupancy of the White House. I think at this stage that there'll likely be a growing number of Senate and House seats, mostly through interesting gerrymandering of the congressional districts going to the Republicans. But it becomes more and more likely that the Democrats will have an interesting challenge in the chief executive race. At the moment, my choice will be Senator John Kerry, with Senator Edwards as his number two. I'll match Kerry's foreign policy acumen against the Bush policies any time. I'll put his Silver Star, Bronze Star, 
three Purple Hearts up against the incumbent's fractured performance in the Texas Air National Guard anytime. There's a line that George W. uses over and over that is not accurate. He claims that the world is a safer place since he came into office. Do you know anyone who believes that? That's the Michael Jackson we miss. <laughs> I miss it too. Thank well, you. you're obviously not retired. No. You're on hiatus. Yeah, I ran 10K this morning, did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're only halfway through the program, and yes, that is the Michael Jackson. My name is Michael Benner. We're having a great time on your radio station, KPFK Los Angeles. Intervision till 2. Stay right where you are. Michael Benner with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK, and streaming for the world at KPFK. Dot org. Continuing now with our rebroadcast of the Michael Jackson interview from February of 2004, just part of our tribute to Michael on his passing about 10 days ago. Here we go. Do you find it easier to be on that side or to be on my side? Your side. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where you're best, no question Thank about it. Again, Michael Jackson, my guest... Hey, here's a, this is the closest we come to commercials. It's a little promo. Should a green... Could I do it? Oh, of course. I done one oh, my Lord. So long. It's not really a little promo spot, Michael. You can do that. Should a green run for president? Join us for the rebroadcast of an hour, one of the Peter Cameo and Norman Solomon debates today at 4 p.m. Stay tuned for Speaking of the Arts with Carol Kaufman Siegel coming up next. Oh, but okay. it's not coming up next. Take two. It was going to... It's like, never mind. Yeah, there you go. See, even the pros grew up sometimes. <laughs> You're listening to KPFK. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Again, visit Michael's website during the break. It's michaeljacksontalkradio.com. Right. All right. We'll be right back. I can't wait. More to come. This is KPFK Los Angeles. Back to where you once belonged on the radio. Well, this is hour number two. You know, I've been complaining what, what's this for radio, months. Radio, radio, radio. Well, it's sort of a rock jock. Yeah, I used to do some of that. So did I. Yeah. Let me hear you as a rock jock. Well, I can't do AM rock. I, I, that's why I went into news because my voice was too deep and I couldn't talk fast enough. Picking them up and laying them down on the bus of the bay, KYA, 12 midnight to 6 a.m. If I'd heard Running Bear one more time, I'd have gone bonkers. <laughs> I remember that song. <laughs> no, we did the opposite on Underground FM. First of all, you gotta, you have to alter your state. Yeah. yeah. And you have to be very slow and quiet. And Of course, we had FM, as we do here now, so we could get real close. and yeah. Hey, you know, I used to do it when I worked with you. I'd go from KLOS, and they'd be, hi, this is Michael Benner, and here's the news on KLOS. And then I'd go across the hall to KBC, and I'd say, skies are cloudy, 75 degrees in Los Angeles. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. is Michael Benner with the friggin' news, <laughs> and you better listen by God, or... 
conference just I as, thought you had a one-hour show. I do. We're here a second time as a tribute to you and your willingness to come Thank and you. talk to KPFK people and give us some hope that you're going to persevere, get back on the radio someplace. We want people to know about your website. There are too few voices of sanity in the world today, and we need reassurance. I need reassurance. And your voice on the radio, and whether it's here, whether it's going to your website, uh, whether it's streaming audio, whatever we got to do, we have to bring some balance. It's not, let's, def- uh, speaking for myself, let's defeat those nasty right-wing liars. It's, how about some balance? How about some freedom? How about some First Amendment? How about Justice Black mm-hmm. saying... That uh, here is di- that's the phrase diverse and antagonistic. Yeah. Uh, we should we should find no comfort in the fact that every talk show host sounds the same on AM radio. That all the news sounds the same. Well, you realize how in part this comes about. Nearly every morning, and probably every morning, they are fed information from the White House Information Office, from the press office, of questions they'd love posed, issues they'd love tackled. Um. Do you think when the White House has their radio day, when they have a hundred different talk show hosts on the front lawn, that they ever would include somebody who was not in, in their camp? Well, not anymore. Look at the way Helen Thomas has been treated by this administration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My God, Helen Thomas. You've certainly interviewed Helen Thomas. <laughs> Many times. Had her in studio. Yeah. Interviewed her by yeah. telephone. Yeah. I know you respect her. We all do in the business. And uh, who is the other grand dom of newspapers? Uh, uh, Sarah McClendon. Yes. Yeah, but Sarah died. Yes. Um, but, but she used to even shout from the back. Yeah. But she always made sense. She knew her style worked. It's it's a thing about voices, too, that I've noticed. Uh, and it shows up more on radio than on television. The voices that make it are not always the best. They're the most individual sounding. I don't think Johnny Carson would need to speak to you for more than five seconds before you would know who it was. Yeah. Um, Ted Koppel, Sam Donaldson, uh, many of the names I have mentioned and many others as well. I, 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 miss, uh, I miss the great voices of radio. Distinctive. Yeah. yeah. I met Paul Harvey um, last month when we went back. When you were inducted into the Hall of Fame. That was a great thrill. That was really... And a deserved honor. Um, I never dreamed that would happen. I'm number 115. You. Oh, did you... See? I saw your picture with uh, Paul Harvey and Larry King and Michael Jackson. That yeah, whatever was... happened to the other two guys? I don't know. It just <laughs> faded away. <I> guess. <laughs> They're amazing. They really are amazing. There, there was a line that, that, uh, of, of Larry's that I've enjoyed um, over the years. He said, I never learned anything when I was talking. And I think radio is the art of being unnaturally natural. For example, nobody at home knows that you're nodding agreement with me. That's bad radio. You're still nodding agreement with me. It would be worse if I kept interrupting you. Yeah, well, that would be more successful probably these days. But the point is, it's the art of being unnaturally natural. We don't use um, canned applause. We don't need it. But we do have to learn how to go, "Mm mm-hmm. In, in 17 different ways, we do have to know, we laugh more on radio than we do in real life. Really? Yeah. What you, do you think mean? About, Well, if I say something that's fairly funny, 
you'll probably laugh. Oh, I'll exaggerate it a little bit. In real life, away from a microphone, you'll smile. Yeah. So it, it bombed. Well, it, it is a show. We are doing a yeah, show. Yeah. It can be a truthful But show. you're the same person, and I'm the same person, that we are away from the yeah, microphone. we just exaggerate a little bit. What does a microphone do for you? A microphone hooks me to the magic, yeah, to the ethers. Me too. And it wakes me up. I can be worn oh, out yeah. and tired, and everything can be going wrong in life. And when I'm in front of a microphone, it's not that way. I go into a complete altered state. And, uh, in fact, uh, Kurt and I, our mutual friend, yeah. Kurt Wyman, uh, our web guy, was telling me that uh, he noticed that about you. And I said, yeah, I do the same thing. You get in radio, you get so focused, the blinders are on. This building could burn down around us, and we'd sit here chatting and mm -hmm. probably wouldn't even notice mm -hmm. until it started mm -hmm. getting really hot. Uh, that's the focus that you need to be on the radio, I think. Or to do anything well, you have to be focused. Oh, but no. radio is magical. And that's, you know, Michael, This, uh, for me, my concern about excessive deregulation and, and centralization of ownership, as you've pointed out, in all sectors of the economy, not just radio. But because radio is so magical, because um, it, 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 it exists for me so deep in my heart, I have such a love of, of the magic of radio that I, it, it, I take it very personally, I guess. It's like a death uh, to see what's happening in, in the business, to to have to resort to CDs because there's nothing on the radio that I can listen to. Um, I'll listen to a little music, but then here comes that same Foreigner record I've heard a million times. I'll listen to a little bit of Limbaugh, but then I hear him deliberately leaving out facts. Let me give you some things to watch for. Not, I'm not aiming it at you, but when you're listening to interviews on radio or on television, when you hear the announcer say, tell me, that means they haven't thought the question through. Or give me a sense of that that's a wonderful expression of these days they use it over and over again or talk to me about I do that a lot tell me about oh okay well there are exceptions of course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think these are these are uh, ways of buying time or it means I haven't done my homework um, can I, can I go through one more of my editorials? Oh, by all means. I, I brought a stack. and I, Serious or fun? I don't care which. Uh, your choice. Um, I'm just so happy to have you here. Oh, do you know the name Helmut Newton? The photographer. Yeah. Okay. This one I wrote last week. A couple of years ago at Saint-Tropez in the French Riviera, our family was invited to lunch at the beachside home of the world-renowned psychologist and author, Dr. Arthur Janoff. He calls the place Bastide Blanche. It was secluded on the most pristine of strands of sand, where nothing but nude, young, human bodies scattered on towels by the dozens, turning every shade from pink to raw red to bronze. From the moment we arrived and were introduced to the fellow guests, I had a sense it was going to be a memorable afternoon. Indeed it was. In the very next house, they were filming a porno. Not that I noticed. Yes, I did. There were probably half a dozen of the most enormous privately owned mega yachts at anchor. It was, all in all, one of those settings where you might expect Bo Derek to emerge from the water with Dudley Moore awaiting her arrival. Our host, Dr. Janoff, prepared lunch in a most un-French way. We had tacos that he'd brought from California. I found myself seated alongside a rather charming woman named June Brown, obviously an Australian by birth, 
but very much a woman of the world. She was well in her seventies. Across the table, sitting with my wife, Alana, was June's husband, Helmut, a charming, gregarious octogenarian. I was asked whether I had seen and read Helmut's most recent book, and I hadn't. So Sumo, as it's called, a hand-bound signed coffee table work which came with its own stand, was brought to the table, cost $3,000. It was very large and filled with mostly black and white photographs that looked to be mostly dark and sinister. It was Helmut Newton, the provocative master of fashion photography. June, his wife, sitting next to me, showed me full-size pictures of herself that he'd taken, all frontal nudes. It is not the most appetizing of introductions while eating lunch, but she was quite sanguine about it and laughed a lot. I was thinking how much better my photography was than his, until it was pointed out that his photographs at auction easily reached a quarter million dollars and more. That sunny Sunday, honestly, he was armed with a throwaway Kodak camera and snapped several shots of us. I wish, oh how I wish, that I had been more familiar with his work before I met him. Subsequently, I've gained enormous admiration for this photo photographer who, in a career spanning over 40 years, brought sexual provocation to fashion photography and came to be appreciated and respected as an artist the world over. The Helmut Newton woman has become part of the vocabulary of fashion photography. By the way, June, his wife, also became a photographer of repute, and her nom de plume is Alice Springs. I asked him whether he thought his fashion photography was important and realistic, and he answered yes to both questions. He photographed the world, his world, as he saw it. He said that his photography showed you how people lived even when his work was at its most dark and sinister. But he, along with the likes of Richard Avedon and Irving Penn, will likely be remembered as the absolute masters of 20th century fashion photography. As the head of the photography department at the L.A. County Museum of Art said, his work was never dirty. It was good, clean fun. But he stretched the boundaries of what a fashion magazine looked like. He brought a sense of whimsy, a sense of fun, a sense of passion that was totally his. With us at the table was the European editor of Vogue, who spoke of future work that this man already in his eighties would be doing for them. I've heard that they have an edition of this prestigious magazine that'll be featuring more of his photography coming out next month, just three weeks after his death. Helmut spent much of the year in Monte Carlo and the rest of the time living in Los Angeles, where he died last week in a car accident, right outside the glamorous old hotel where he stayed at the Chateau Marmont. He had no children, but his marriage was a love affair that lasted many decades. Every relationship I have leads to stories. That's what I love about the work we do. You write well, too. Oh, no, I just sit down and write. Yeah, but, well... But I don't look it over. That's evidence you do it well, because it's effortless for you. But uh, all the hours, hundreds, thousands of hours I've listened to you on the radio, I've never heard you read an essay you'd written like that. So these are all on your website. Oh, yeah. Um, hundreds. Again, michaeljacksontalkradio.com. This is the first real promotion that it's received. I wonder what impact it's going to have on the hits. We passed this morning, well, we're well over half a million um, without promotion so Alana says why do you do it I said because it keeps my head firmly in place well like uh, what did Hillary say about Everest because it's there 
Oh, no, she didn't. She said to, to, to Bill, you ever do that again, I'll kill you. <laughs> do you know what? I meant Sir Edmund. <laughs> do you know what Sir Edmund said to me? By the way, how do I get one of these uh, MBE deals, Michael? Well, these most excellent. This is not a Bill and Ted award, is it? No, no. But let me this answer the, the Hillary deal. thing first. Oh, okay. I had him on the show, and I asked the obvious question. The president? No, 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 no. That's not until four more, five more years. No, uh, I asked Sir Edmund Hillary. Are you sure that you were the first one to reach the summit? And I loved his reply. He said, Michael, I hope not. And I said, why? He said, there was an Italian who disappeared into the clouds just below the summit, and his remains were never found. And he truly spent his life hoping that he was not the first one to reach the summit. And I believe him. Okay, now you were going to What is the most excellent order of the British Empire? Well... And how do you get one of those things? Out of the blue, I got a call from the British ambassador yeah. saying, uh, And I said, well, of course, sir, I would love to. He said, Buckingham Palace? Do two guests. And I said, oh, yes, sir. When? Well, we begin on by his homeland. I said, well, I, of course, well, my wife and I will fly over. And that's how I got it. I went over there, and she looked at me, and she said, why do you live there? And I said, ma'am, if I didn't, I wouldn't be here now. And I got it, supposedly, for contributing to British-American relations. The same from Mitterrand of France. But I, uh, I can't be knighted for two reasons. One is I don't deserve it. And secondly, um, I'm an American. So the most I can get is the MBE. Oh, I see. And um, my buddy, Roger Moore, who just became Sir Roger, he's still British. But he used to be OBE. And I said, Roger, what's the real difference between my MBE and your OBE? He said, well, MBE means my bloody effort. <laughs> OBE means other buggers' efforts. <laughs> did you like the Queen? <laughs> well, I didn't have, I mean, what do you mean, did I so like You met her. What did she, how did she strike you? With her purse. No, no. And if she carries these stupid purses much See, I was going to say, how did you find the queen? Now, there's a setup. Buckingham Palace. There you go. No, how did I find her? Do you know how long you talk to her? This is how I answer it. Give me your hand. You shake hands with her. Yes. And the moment she's had enough of you, she does this. And you let go. Little signal. She pushes your hand away. and But she was charming. Did you meet the queen mum? No. No, I would like to have met her. That was the gutsiest of them all. Do you think it's a good idea for the Brits to maintain their royalty, their monarchy? Yes. Because it plays what role? Well, first of all, tourism. I mean, enormous. And it recreates or reestablishes in the minds of young people history. There's a great deal of pride that the British students have. You know, a difference I find between, and this is really a segue rapid to a different subject entirely, I find... Whereas the American child has far more confidence when he's in school or she's in school than the Brit. When they leave school, that picture reverses. I don't know what it is, but somehow I find most of the children of friends of mine, when they have graduated high school or matriculated, as we say there, has a different meaning here, uh, they have more confidence about the world than most of the American children I know. The Australian pediatrician, Dr. Helen Caldicott, yes. said one day to a small group I was uh, attending, she said, 
America would benefit from a monarchy. And you, there was a, a, an audible gasp, yeah. really. What in the world is she talking about? She says, then you would have someone to love unconditionally, and like the Brits, could then be harder on the politician. And coming back to real time, unfortunately, that's as much of the interview as I have. I mentioned earlier it was a two-hour interview in 2004. We edited it down to fit into this one hour, but I only have an hour and 17 minutes of the two hours. If you'd like to hear the whole thing unedited, you can go to the homepage for this radio program, theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of it, theagelesswisdom.com. Scroll down through the built-in audio player past my bio, and you see a little link that says Michael Jackson Interview. And you can click on that, listen to the whole thing, unedited. And again, uh, my condolences to Michael's family and his friends and close associates. He did indeed have friends all over the city and, uh, and around the world. He was uh, just wonderful at what he did, and I'm so indebted to him as a talk show host, as so many radio people are, for showing us the ropes and how to be classy, how to avoid hate-mongery and, and fear on the radio, and do a dignified interview with respect for all concerned. And for that, I'm eternally grateful and indebted. Michael Jackson. Tune in next week. As I say, we lost the great Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh a few days ago, so we're going to do a tribute to him. We'll talk about his life, we'll talk about peace, and uh, we'll talk about anti-war activism, and perhaps, better said, how to wage peace with mindfulness. A tribute to Thich Nhat Hanh. We'll have that next week, Tuesday at 1 o'clock. Hope you can join us. Again, the homepage for this program is theagelesswisdom.com. We do stream on YouTube as well as podcasts to all player apps, aggregators, and podcatchers. And you can also find out more about me at michaelbenner.com. Thanks a lot for listening and telling your friends about the Mystery School on KPFK. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.